Welcome to Podcast Sans Frontieres, a Metal Gear Solid audio experience. Here, we infiltrate the narrative, interrogate the characters, extract the themes, via Fulton, of course, and finally face down the technological behemoth that is the Metal Gear franchise. My friends, let us fight together again. I have waited long for this day. We will fight with you once more. Welcome back, boss. Now that all five of us are together, it's time we go to the depths of hell itself. I'm Manu, also known as Nuclear Bomb. I'm Brian, also known as Brian. Today's episode is The Dead Are Not Silent, our fourth episode on Metal Gear Solid 3 Snake Eater from 2004. Today will be a lot of fun as we will dive into this game's bosses, the Cobra Unit. But first, our spoiler warning for this and every episode. Everything is declassified. We know who Sigint becomes. We know who Meryl marries. We know the fate of Master Kazuhiro Miller. This is not a playthrough podcast. It's all on the table for discussion as we progress through the games. So today we are going to focus in on the Cobra unit as organized by the boss, a.k.a. the Joy. But we will give the boss, the Joy, her own space in an upcoming episode. Naked Snake fighting the Cobra unit essentially is the second act of our story. A lot of the cutscene and dialogue that takes place during the second act focuses on Snake defeating its members and which ones lay ahead. There are other scenes in between the pain and the sorrow that are very important, namely meeting Comrade Granin, or Based Granin, and the Naked Snake torture scene, of course. For the purpose of tidiness, we will focus in on just the Cobra unit today and give these other scenes more airtime next time around. Sounds like the Cobra Unit's members' names came from the specific emotions they each carry into battle. Emotions? Yeah. For unbearable torment, the pain. For true oblivion, the end. For infinite rage, the fury. For absolute terror, the fear. And for unsurpassed bliss, the joy. The joy? It's another name for the boss. Because of the joy she feels in battle, I suppose. Uh. During the war, she had a partner named the Sorrow. Sorrow and Joy. They say there couldn't have been a more perfect pair. The Cobra unit are this game's boss unit, carrying on the meme of Foxhound and Dead Cell. They are even called the Sons of the Boss, in the way Foxhound labels themselves Sons of Big Boss. The members are the Joy, also known as the Boss, who is the leader and founder, the Sorrow, who's a medium and dead before the events of MGS3, the Fury, pyrotechnician and pilot, the End, the ancient sniper, the Fear, who's your stealth guy, and the Pain, who's your infantry or infantry man. And Vulcan Raven, giant and shaman. (laughs) Just the way you're saying, pyrotech and pilot. That's, yeah. I I do wish we had Campbell in this game to do that. The Fury, he went into space, Snake. Like, yeah, like the 19-year-old Campbell. A super young Campbell would be cool. I mean, someone like Campbell could have easily played the role of what Sigint ended up playing in this game. Yeah. Or they could have had someone like that. I get why they didn't, but um, very easily could have. Yeah, yeah. I like Sigint, though, so I'm happy with it. Yeah. So these naming conventions, the joy, the sorrow, the fury, the end, the fear, the pain, is supposedly taken from Colonel Kurtz of Apocalypse Now, who screams, the horror, the horror, at the end. 
Apocalypse Now and its source Heart of Darkness are big Kojima touchstones, of course. Kurtz is definitely a big boss influence and one of the main techs driving MGSV. I'm going to go ahead and say that uh, Apocalypse Now is a much larger influence than Heart of Darkness. Yes, yes. Because I, I don't think Kojima, I'd say he doesn't read. I just don't think he, he considers literary influences very, aside from one, there's, there's a big one. And also in MGSV, but other than that, it's not a lot of literary, not a lot of surface level literary influences, at least. And that's sort of what, you know, he's one of those creators who will let you know his influences. They're, they're pretty much all surface level and not, not in a way that that sounds like, not in the like pejorative sense, but like he will let you know what his influences are pretty quickly. Yes. Um, though I do actually have a theory about MGS5 and literary influences, but I will save that for many, many episodes down the road. Yeah. The game calls the Cobra unit names emotions, but obviously they are not all emotions, such as the pain or the end. Sensations may be more accurate or parts of the battlefield experience. And there's probably something to the fact that of the six members, five of them contain emotions with a negative connotation, pain, fear, and fury, sorrow, and one one that's positive, the joy, perhaps a commentary on war, war fiction, and maybe Metal Gear Solid specifically, in that it's five parts tragedy and one part elation. And even then, the joy is not, whatever joy she had is, is been taken from her. It's gone. Yeah. So Yes, it's almost ironic or dramatic irony in a sense. Mm-hmm. The unit was trained in extraordinary and even superhuman technique, possibly owing to parasite therapy a key story beat for MGSV and also a predecessor to gene therapy and nanomachines in games set in the future. Because of both their abilities and the type of clandestine operations they performed, all members were outfitted with microbombs, so they couldn't be taken prisoner or studied. This rears its head narratively, as all living members of the Cobra unit technically died due to these bombs and not by Snake himself, taking that victory away from Snake, which again challenges power fannies yada yada old hat for this podcast. Canonically, the Cobras were formed in 1942 during the Battle of Stalingrad. The boss, known as the Joy back then, formed and led the unit, which ultimately worked for the Philosophers. They would also famously participate in the landing at at Normandy, destroying V-2 rocket installations for Allied forces. It was in this very battle that the Joy gave birth to her son via the sorrow. This child would be Ocelot, as discussed last time. The Cobra unit would officially disband in 1947 as the Philosophers fractured and in 1962, the boss would have to kill the sorrow in exchange for their child, Ocelot's life. One must live, one must die. I don't think she was actually sent to kill the sorrow. I think she was sent with the explicit, like, one of you has to die. Yes. That was that was the goal. So I, I, if I remember correctly, they there's a scene I wish that they had done in some ways is this boss and the sorrow meeting and talking about the situation and deciding that the sorrow should die, which seems very sad. Yes. We get a little bit of it um, when you beat the sorrow a at little the end. Bit. Yeah, just a, a, like a reference almost. During the events of this game, they are all basically laying down their lives for Snake, getting one last battle out of it, but ultimately their job is to lose to Snake. This acts both as a way to build up Snake, making sure he's good enough and growing his legacy, don't make me quote Liberty Valance again, and give the boss the time she needs to get the Philosopher's legacy away from Bolgan and find a way to get it back to zero via Snake and or Ocelot. But what does it mean that Snake defeats them all? Early on, the Joy tells Jack that he has yet to find his emotion on the battlefield. Does Snake consume their emotions? Is Snake killing these emotions inside of him, or is he bringing them into him so he has like all these emotions within him? It's always hard to tell, honestly. 
I kind of think he's overcoming these emotions, like defeating the pain is, is part. I mean, that's, you gotta imagine that that's one of the most painful experiences he goes through is getting stung by bees a whole bunch. Like that shit sucks. It hurts. Uh, the fear is supposed to frighten him and he takes away his fear for the rest of it. It's kind of, I don't know. It's a little inconsistent. Uh, the end I think is the most interesting one to talk about. And I'm going to talk about that when we get to him. I think there's a, there's a really interesting way to look at it. I think it may be that, or I think maybe, honestly, I want to, I want to know what the original line is. The, uh, like before pre-translated, because I, I wonder if the boss is actually, if, if it's supposed to be like, she's, she's, he's killing these emotions because they're not the emotions that he needs to fight with. Like, like he's supposed to be searching for his emotion. And when she says he's consuming them, I wonder if, if it's meant to be like devouring almost like you're, you are eliminating these emotions. You're going through like the Rolodex of emotions and like, no, not this one. I don't use fear to fight. He's not Batman. <laughs> uh, you know, doesn't use pain, doesn't use sorrow, doesn't use joy. So he just like grind his way. doesn't use fury. And so like, I, I think the, I, I personally, to me, I think the ultimate point is that he doesn't, he's a new kind of soldier who doesn't fight. There's no emotion. He, he's just completely, he's does what he's told. And he's just like a good soldier who follows orders. And I think that is what kind of breaks him. And that's sort of, I think his main, his main goal, like for the rest of his time in the series is, is trying to find something soldier for soldiers to fight for, you know, so they're not tools of the government or anyone else. I, the tragedy of Big Boss is I don't think he has a reason to fight other than that he enjoys it. Uh, what I was going to say is I think that idea of the shifting times of the soldier really works with the post-World War II era because the Cobra unit represents, and I know World War I was a bunch of bullshit and politics, but you know there's this general idea that World War II was the last great and like morally defensible war, whatever that means. I don't even think that means anything, but no, but that's the popular interpretation of it. Right. And like, yeah. And the, and those, the, the Cobras are like sort of positioned as like the last of the legendary heroes. Like that's kind of how mm-hmm. they, that, so yeah, that, that fits perfectly. And I, that I think yeah. is specifically the end. I think that's his purpose because I think he's the end of that kind of soldier and he's being consumed and destroyed by the new kind of amoral spiritually bereft empty cypher soldier big boss yeah that's i'm, I'm going to talk about that more when we get to him i think that's really what that's but the whole that i think works really well i think that's one of the, one of the reasons that's the best part of the game and one of the best parts of any game that's ever been released in the history of time okay great because i have also an interpretation about consuming the end and it's apparently different than yours so we will talk about that when we get to him mm-hmm um, I did want to mention one last thing, and maybe I should hand it off to you because you found this fact about what a King Cobra is. Yeah, the King Cobra is not actually a cobra. That's the thing. They're not they're not part of the genus. They're part of their own new genus called Ophiophagus, which is actually roughly translates to snake eater. They're called the King Cobra because they devour cobras and other snakes, which that's like Kojima had to have seen that. Someone had to have shown him that or he had to have found it somewhere and be like, oh, that's a good name for a game. <laughs> That's what I should call the game because it really works. It, it fits perfectly. That I think is the best use of Snake Eater is that he's just devouring the Cobras. Like it fits very perfectly. It fits better than a lot of his little metaphors do. And it, it seems almost like, like a joke mm-hmm. when, when I found that out, I was like, that can't be right. But I looked it up and it's true. The number of ways Snake Eater is in this game, whether it's the name of a type of goat or, you know, this um, is really remarkable. Like I said in uh, the previous episode, it's very peak Kojima brain yeah. in the sense that it sounds very silly, but then it's like, oh shit, there, there's levels here. It's definitely the best subtitle in the game and in the series because mm-hmm. like Sons of Liberty is fine. 
uh, Guns of the Patriots is fine. Guns of the Patriots sucks. Yeah, it's not very good. I guess I guess Metal Gear Solid is tactical stealth espionage, right? Tactical espionage action or something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then like none of the other ones. Are, like, the Phantom Pain is pretty good. That's a pretty good. Yeah, that's the only one that's I think close. <laughs> Technically, Revengeance is one, which is the the greatest word ever created. <laughs> yes. Uh, I was going to say, I think the Phantom Pain probably works second best to Snake Eater because like Snake Eater, it has a million ways that you can meaningfully apply what that subtitle means relative to the story. So Peace Walker doesn't really count because that's it's not a numbered entry. That's just the name of the game. Mm-hmm. But it's, Peace Walker is good, too. I like Peace Walker. Spoiler, I like Peace Walker. But we did just mention the Phantom Pain a second ago. So why don't we get into I am the pain. I will guide you to a world of anguish beyond your imagination. The Pain, voiced by Greg Berger. Unlike some of the previous games where we spent a lot of time going into long backstories and this, you know, great, like, characterization conception, a lot of the Cobra unit shares the same backstory that we discussed in the founding of the unit. They were all roughly generally born around the same time, with the exception of the end. Um, And then much is really not known of them prior to World War II. Um, So we'll dive into first the design and concepts for the pain, who is called the Hornet Soldier. And he kind of acts as the infantryman of the Cobras. And his special power is that a beehive lives inside of him, and he has a queen bee in his back pocket who helps him main control of the hive. I think often of the Simpsons quote about uh, the dogs with bees, and when they bark, they shoot bees at you. That's pretty much what the pain is. (laughs) Um, And he also secretes pheromones that allow further control of the bees, which also increases his adrenaline and thus increases his pain threshold, which gives him his name. And it would eventually be retconned that the whole queen bee in his back pocket was never really there. All this sort of secret uh, secreting pheromones uh, was driven by parasites that uh, Skullface would extract. Uh, One thing we actually haven't mentioned uh, in the previous episodes is while Snake is going through Operation Snake Eater, uh, Skullface, the antagonist from MGSV, is technically coming in and doing cleanup behind Snake, uh, something we won't learn until the events of that game. But uh, the idea is that after Snake clears an area, Skullface comes through and makes sure there's no remnants of, you know, American weapons or yada yada. Um, but it's also believed that he harvested some of these parasites that were found on the pain or the end or what have you. Fear too, I believe. Yep. So uh, before we get into the boss fight, we'll go into some of the preceding maps. Uh, everything uh, between Ocelot and the pain battle is basically in a network of caves. Uh, there's no real enemies here, just a bunch of animals. Uh, you can find some Kenyan crabs, which Snake absolutely loves to eat. Crab battle. I had a reference crab battle, sorry. <laughs> we, we needed to get one somewhere in this series. Um, and then you can also find Russian glow caps, which are a type of mushroom, but can be used for uh, preventing battery jane and can also be used uh, tactically in the battle with Volgan, which we'll get into in a future episode. In these caves, uh, the entire screen is dark, uh, the first time you fall through that crevice, but your eyes adjust over time and the screen becomes slightly more clear. It's kind of uh, symbolic in a way because after you fight Ocelot, everything up to this game has been fairly straightforward, but then the Cobra unit just starts making everything super weird. And it's kind of like your memories get blacked out and then you kind of have this really weird, surreal dream, so to speak. Um, to counter the darkness, 
Uh, you can find a torch as well as the night vision goggles in the cave network. And then you can also use the cigar that you have with you to give you a little bit of light. The major weapon you can find here is also the M37 shotgun, which is very useful for the upcoming boss battle. Uh-huh. Extremely useful, I'd say. Yes. We'll we'll dive into the pain boss fight. Um, so the pain has a couple basic maneuvers. He's basically stationed on a giant island in the middle of this map. And he does, you know, some goofy backflips and sumo-style taunts. And he attacks you with that swarm of bees that we mentioned earlier. He also has what is called bullet bees, which are essentially bullet bees. <laughs> <laughs> and they get stuck in you um, if uh, one lands and you have to go into the cure menu to extract it. They look disgusting. They look horrible. I hate looking at them. Yeah, they're gross. And he can also summon bees to bring him weapons like Tommy gun or grenades, which he will very verbally announce when he does so. And then he also uses the bees as both armor and as duplicates of his body. So you will see like several bee silhouettes of his body and maybe not be so sure which one is actually him. It's not that hard to tell, though. No, it's fairly, fairly easy. In terms of tactics and techniques you can deploy against the pain, I, you know, as you know, at this point, I love doing these games non-lethally. So I mostly use my Mark 22. I use smoke grenades to disperse the bees when they gather around him. And then I just go to town with a Trank gun. Um, that's, you know, pretty easy. This is definitely one of the easier boss fights in the game. Uh, but we mentioned the M37 shotgun. Um, that also works wonders in terms of dispersing the bees and doing a ton of damage to the pain. And then in terms of avoiding the bees, um, you can uh, dive into the water, which, you know, bees famously don't scuba dive. <laughs> and then also if you wear the snow camo and face paint, that will also keep bees away. The idea is that white is supposed to look like a beekeeper suit, which is supposed to make the bees afraid. I don't know, but yeah, I like that that kind of goofiness finds its way into this battle as well. Yeah, yeah. It's one of the three boss fights that lets you just kind of fuck around a lot which I really appreciate. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's pretty slow paced. Like his attacks are pretty well uh, telegraphed and like, you know, when they're coming, it's very easy to dodge for the most part. So you can kind of just like mess around, throw stuff at him, see what he does. Yeah. Yeah, It's it's a good enough fight. Like it's not very difficult at all, but it's a, it's a nice kind of introductory fight. Cause the Ocelot fight is kind of a cutscene fight in a lot of ways. So Mm -hmm. yeah, I think this adds like the Ocelot fight is a straight, you know, pistols at dawn kind of duel and it really you know hammers home your shooting mechanics yeah this one uh because of the different elevations between the little islands between the water that you can swim around uh it just gives you a little more option and gets you more used to the kind of environments you're going to be fighting these bosses in in this game and when we say a boss fight isn't difficult that's not meant to mean that's a bad boss fight um because again this is the second boss of the game and you're still kind of learning not learning but you're still kind of working on your mechanics and style of play at this point in the game Looking at the arena that you fight the pain in, uh, like we mentioned, you're in the middle of a cave system, but there's a giant uh, amount of sunlight coming in through a hole in the roof of the cave, I guess. And there are several islands Snake can swim to, a giant pool uh, into which he can submerge to, again, avoid attacks. And then, you know, the, the swim mechanic obviously plays a big role in this battle, so it's a focus on the environment or the scene that you're fighting the pain in. And the pain, you know, is about bugs and gross stuff. So the fact that you're fighting him in a dank hole where bugs would congregate, you know, it makes sense. It's a way that the boss map reflects the boss character, which we've talked about in previous games. And then this is also the first of the Cobras, you know, you kill. You know, it's the start of the second act, the darkness of the cave. Um, And then, 
so it kind of sets the start of fighting the Cobras into darkness. And then when you beat the last Cobra at the end of this episode or, at, you know, at the end of this act, um, you're actually bored into a new dawn uh, into broad daylight. So I kind of like that juxtaposition that you start in the darkness and then after you beat the Cobras, you end in the light. Yeah. Then lastly, uh, like we started with the Ocelot battle last time, we want to go over the special camo you can get if you beat the pain non-lethally. What you get is the Hornet Stripe camo from the Pain, uh, which is orange, yellow, and black for the most part. And it keeps off bugs, spiders, and leeches. And if you shoot down a hornet's nest while you're wearing it, the bees will follow you and distract enemy soldiers, uh, which is a cool thing that I've actually never really tried out. Yeah, that sounds cool. Um, I will say that the Pain uh, camo is one of the few camos I never really found a real use for. Uh, during the game, I mean, there are uses for it. It's just I never really went to it because I was fine navigating yeah. uh, stuff the way I had in the past. We're going to try to talk about the character of these characters, but like the, the pain, there's nothing there. He just shoots bees at you and yells. There's nothing much there to him. I would definitely say that uh, the amount of backstory increases per Cobra battle. Yeah. Um, yeah. You get more and more until the end, which is the, or not the end, the player, but uh, the last of the Cobra is the sorrow. Um, who has a ton of backstory, usually involving Ocelot and the boss. And then if you include the boss in that, she obviously has the most backstory. So it's definitely escalating. It's working in that pacing that you mentioned in earlier episodes. It is time for you to feel the fear. The fear, voiced by Michael Bell. So the fear is known as the spider soldier, and he has very Spider-Man-like movements and weird motions that were actually leftovers from Raiden from MGS2 that didn't end up making that game. The fear underwent surgery to have double joints, to have those weird cat-like eyes, and to have a forked tongue. Where he found a surgeon to do this pre-Cold War, who knows. And then uh, he could also run on water, which is similar to Vamp. And this entire boss fight we're going to talk about here with the fear is basically Predator from 1987. Uh, the maps leading up to the fear, uh, first you start in a couple mangroves where there are a couple hovercraft soldiers that are, you know, kind of just patrolling the waterway here. Uh, I do recommend uh, calling Sigint when you see these hovercrafts because uh, he actually gives you detail that the CIA was working on uh, hovercraft technology back at the time, but it was scrapped, you know, in the real world. But I like that they use the seeds of that to create technology in this alternate history. I also like the the warehouse when you're coming up to them swimming. I like that it reemphasizes the swimming mechanics you probably just first started using to fight the pain. Like I don't think you there's anywhere to swim before that. So that's a, that's a fun. Yeah, it's a good way that the game does. It's not the most tutorial heavy game. Like it, it kind of throws you in the fire in a lot of ways like most Metal Gears do, but I do like that they, they sort of ramp up. As soon as you start using something, you'll you'll see that ramped up kind of organically over the course of the game. No, I agree with that. It's 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 part of the great pacing. It's a great way to pace a game. Yeah, and I'd also add that this is one of the key maps for using your croc cap. Um, it's very easy to sneak past the guards with that alligator on your head. Yeah. Uh, the mangroves open up to two separate maps, uh, various warehouse docks, uh, the one on the left uh, is kind of a dead end, but um, it uh, has a weapons depot. It's one of the first places you can pick up the SVD, which is the lethal sniper rifle in this game. Um, and then when you enter the second map, which pushes you th- you know, further 
through the maps of the game. Uh, there's a cutscene that we'll talk about uh, next time. There's also a chance to snipe the end on the warehouse docks, which we'll talk about when we get to the end. He <sighs> just yells his name. I love it. The next maps on the way uh, to the fear is the warehouse, which is the first fully indoor environment. Uh, there's no single great camo that works indoors. Uh, so usually you go with the splitter, but at best it gets you like 70, 75% camo index. And then uh, within this fully indoor uh, warehouse, there's also a food depot, which you can bomb. We talked about that you know, at length last time, but this is one where you bomb it. And then when you come back to this map, as you will, after you beat the fear, um, all the soldiers will be starving. And it's really easy to get past them if, they, if they're like that. The warehouse is one of the hardest stealth environments in the game to me. Mm-hmm. It's tough to get through without being seen. And you may not have the you may not have the weapons to take care of the shield assholes if they showed up. I hate those guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because minus if you the shotgun is really the only powerful weapon you would have yeah. had at this game, and that's only if you found it in the caves, and it's not like on the direct path to the pain. You have to actually hunt for it or uh, veer off the main course to find it. And yeah, this is one of the harder maps because so it's. Mostly a large main floor that has two uh, guards patrolling it in a circular uh, patrols. But then there's like two to three levels of like split level staircase where, you know, the food depot can be found. And there's guards on each of those levels. So they have an elevated look down on that large first level map. Yep. So while you're navigating around those patrols on the ground level, you also have to be cognizant of the guys up top who can look down at you and look over most of the cover that you're using at that point. Yeah, it's a tough little area. It's not, that's, the, honestly, that's the, it is one of the better areas to practice CQC though. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Because you you will be in to- you will be in tight quarters for if like, you get in a fight in, in the warehouse. Yes. The next map is Granini Gorky South, but this is actually the boss map. So we'll talk about it a little more in depth when we return to this map uh, in a little bit. However, if you hang around in this map for a while and actually climb the trees, it is possible to see the fear jumping around the top of the trees at times. You do have to use your night vision goggles, I believe. Uh, but or uh, sorry, the thermal goggles. Um, but that is just a neat little Easter egg, I guess. The next couple maps are Granini Gorky Lab Exteriors, uh, which is basically just kind of a mini base that you have to infiltrate. There's a hole in the wall on one side, and on the other side, there's a door where if you knock on it, a uh, troop from inside the gate will open the door and you can sneak in behind him. Uh, right outside the Granini Gorky Lab, there's also a weapons depot you can bomb. But this is also the place where you can pick up the M16 or the XM16E, whatever the full name they give it is here. This is really your chance at the first automatic uh, like machine gun, assault rifle kind of weapon uh, to get. And then uh, you uh, break yourself into the labs. Um, this is the first map with officers and scientists. And you have a scientist outfit from when you fought or when you met Eva the first time. So uh, it's pretty easy. You just basically don't have to bump into anyone and then you can get around these maps. And also don't do anything suspicious like take out a gun or, I don't know, crawl through a vent or something like that. Or stand up and down a whole bunch. That's more of a Hitman thing, though. <laughs> Sorry to cut in on Hitman again. That is a great thing in the new Hitman games is that even if you are have the right costume and you're in the right area and you're not doing anything else suspicious, if you just start crouching up and down in place for a while, people first they'll they'll have a bunch of lines be like, "What are you doing, sir? Hey, sir, what's wrong?" And then after if you keep doing it for like a minute, minute and a half, they'll call guards, which is great, and you'll it'll ruin your disguise. That's that's the that, that's the Metal Gear stuff in that game that I really love. But um, I think scientists in this game will come up to you if you like are doing weird shit. 
Yeah, and I think you you want to not have the scientists look at you straight yes. in the face because then they'll recognize you as not one of them. Yeah, they'll they'll see a guy who's, who has a who's uh, rugged has rugged facial hair and has a headband and be like, "You're not a scientist. There's no way this guy's a scientist." Which again, if you saw solid, if you saw naked snake in the wild, you'd be like, "Yeah, it's a weird outdoorsman, hottest scientist I know." <laughs> Just Daniel Boone. Um, in the labs, you can also find the cigarette spray and the handkerchief, which are two of my favorite uh, weapons in the game. Both are great for knocking out opponents at close range non-lethally. Uh, I, I really just tend to go to town with these two weapons once I get them. While exploring the labs, you'll also find various magazines laying on desks and tables. And the magazines are actually like EGM covers of Metal Gear Solid 3. Uh, which is, you know, the game referencing itself, which is kind of cute. In the HD version, there's a bunch of, uh, like, MGS4 stuff, too. Yeah. There's, like, there's like preview covers. There's, like, uh, re- retrospective issues on MGS3. Like, it's it's a full... They put in a lot of references to basically every time that this game or its sequel were put in... Uh, I think it's ads for MGS4 is what I was thinking of. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, any time that, that... And basically any magazine cover about MGS3 is in this game somewhere. It's neat. Yeah. And uh, later on, when there's some... Ivan Rydanovich Rykov stuff that we'll go over. There's also MGS2 uh, posters and stuff uh, surrounding him because he's modeled after the Raiden character. What? He is. <laughs> uh, the main thing about the labs is this is where you meet Comrade Granin or Based Granin, like I like to call him, but he rules so much that we'll just save him for next week's discussion. All right, let's get into the fear battle properly. The fear. Which is again uh, in uh, Granini Gorky South. Um, it starts out with the fear hitting you with a couple poison crossbow bolts. I think it's like the Brazilian wandering spider venom uh, that he injects you with. So as soon as you uh, cut out of that introductory cutscene with the fear, you immediately need to go to that cure menu and give yourself both an antidote and take out the bolt that's stuck in snake. Uh, the fear has two crossbows. Uh, they're called the William Tell and the Little Joe. Those are both real crossbow models, as you'd expect. Um and we mentioned that uh, he shoots poison darts at you, which requires both extraction and antidote or serum to heal. Uh, the, the fear will hop between trees, and he will spend most of the battle pretty much above you. Like I said, it's very similar to the Predator, um, where he'll be uh, in stealth camo, a.k.a. you can't really see him besides that kind of like shimmery, you know, layer that we're familiar with the Metal Gear Solid stealth camo look. And he's basically hopping between uh, treetops. Uh, Somewhat Spider-Man-like, somewhat, you know, Predator-like. And in terms of beating this guy, uh, I find him to actually be the easiest of the boss battles, at least the way I do it. Um, If you put on the thermal goggles, that pretty much nullifies his whole stealth camo thing. You'll be able to see him, find him. Um, He usually bounces around treetops, but then he'll usually perch on one for long enough for you to uh, line up some good shots and get him. But my real favorite trick with him is this stealth camo that the Fear uses really drains his stamina. And we've mentioned many times that this game is a game where the systems in play for Snake apply to all the characters and all the bosses. Mm -hmm. So here we really see the stamina um, system uh, rear its head with the fear battle. So the fierce camo drains his stamina really fast to be invincible. So during the battle, he actually has to go eat. So what you can do is... Uh, you can either throw poison food if you're going for a lethal kill, or you can throw rotten food if you're going for a non-lethal kill, and he will consume those when he's looking for food, and it pretty much takes off a third of his life whenever he does that. You can pretty much beat this battle in you know under a minute and a half or two. Yeah, I would say that 
I, I deliberately didn't use the thermal goggles in it. I didn't, I, I didn't get them because I wanted to have more of a challenge. Mm. But even then, I think the game portrays the non-lethal stuff as like harder. And it's, this is the one boss fight where like, no, it's easier. <laughs> like it's really easy to get all the, to get the non-lethal, the non-lethal takedown, which is the best takedown. <laughs> so I, I actually like deliberately this time tried to get him to run into traps and like, Tried to uh, trick him. And tried to. Get, I tried. To, I almost got him to jump in one of the punchy pits, which would have been amazing. But he jumped out of the way, and uh, I actually had a lot more fun. Like the first few times I beat this game, it was more just like a shooting gallery, and it's kind of dull. Mm-hmm. Um, even the non-lethal one is like fun to do, but it's it's not challenging in any way. So I actually had a lot more fun trying to get him. Like I would stand in front of where the traps are, and then when he came down to attack me, I would dive through the I'd dive through and break it the other way, and he would get he got hit by one. It did like a, a quarter of his health. It was great. Uh, I I tried to CQC him a couple times. I kicked him once, and then I uh, I didn't. I tried not to first person shoot him. I tried to just shoot him like a like Metal Gear Solid One style, and I had a lot of fun with it. It was like actually challenging. He almost got me a couple times. Like, he got me down to pretty low health, like th- qu- third quarter health. I uh, got shot with about thirty darts, but hey, <laughs> that's something we should mention. I think that's the one injury in this game. Like all the injuries, if you don't cure them, will hurt your max health and hurt Snake. But I think if you don't remove the poison darts after, there's a certain time frame for it. If you don't remove them, you can't take them out. And they're just inside Snake's body for the rest of the game, including inside in the cutscenes, which is very funny. Mm-hmm. Of him just having like, I think you could just have like five or six darts sticking out of his side while he's like jumping off a waterfall or fight fighting the boss in a seek uh, in a cutscene. It's very funny looking. One of my favorite little things in the game. I'm glad you mentioned uh, that. You know trying to have fun with this battle and getting out of the shooting gallery aspect approach to this boss battle because this is a boss battle that I have beaten without actually moving Snake anywhere on the map. Um, You know, as soon as you go into gameplay, you can go into first-person mode and just start shooting him up in the trees, and then when he comes down to eat, you can throw food, and that's basically it. So I've beat him without actually moving Snake at all. Uh, So it can be a very easy fight. It's probably my least favorite of the fights. It's not to say it's a bad fight, but it's probably the least... Uh, I think the arena is neat. We can talk about it in a second. I will say, though, I like the idea that's one of the main Metal Gear things to me is self-imposed challenge. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm going to do it this way. I think I mentioned it uh, when we were talking about MGS1, but my buddy imposed the self-imposed challenge of not picking up the silencer or the suppressor for the SOCOM in the first game and trying to get by without just, you know, supr- you know silently killing everyone as you go through the maps. And yeah. I thought that was silly at the time, but in fact, that would be actual mechanics built into later games so um but you did mention the boss arena which uh, we did want to talk about it's mostly open grass area with a couple elevated levels on the sides it almost feels like an atrium or coliseum in a way and there's a lot of trees uh trees with branches trees with you know fruit and uh stuff hanging from it that you could play with uh there's lots of flora and fauna on here including poison frogs which you can take out and then feed the fear uh to do that you know kill via making him eat stuff and then uh which brian mentioned there's a ton of traps like uh holes you can fall into that are covered up with leaves like logs hanging in the trees where if you you know hit a tripwire the log will come and smash you it makes it for a very dynamic environment perhaps the most dynamic of the boss fights a lot of people i think especially because you can see the fear here earlier i think people think this is like his lair it's not it's actually um if you'll notice the traps are all pointed towards grand league orky it's actually an area to keep those scientists there because you can find a couple bodies in that area. Ah, that's right. Of scientists who tried to escape and were caught by traps and pinned against trees and just and killed. 
So it's actually an, it's an area that existed well before the Cobras were there. And I think it's just, he just found that place and was like, Ooh, cool. This is where I should fight. Yeah. That's, that's good environmental storytelling. Cause you wouldn't know. I don't think I, I don't think I knew that the first couple of times I played. And then I noticed all the traps are coming from like, the if you were coming from Grindley Gorky, they're much easier to run into when you're going in, you can actually avoid them all pretty easily. No, that's, that's a really good point. Uh, that is something I think I knew at one point, but just I didn't have it fresh in my mind and completely forgot. So I thank you. And that reminds me of a mechanic that you can do uh, a few maps previously when you're right outside the scientist lab um, of Granini Gorky. You can put on the scientist outfit before you go into the lab, and then you can just walk up to a guard, and a guard will be like, hey, you shouldn't be leaving, and then they'll put you into the lab itself, uh, yep. which is just an easy way to get in without having to sneak in or trank people or whatever. So um, keeping the scientists in obviously should also uh, tell you a little bit about the kind of man Volgan is and what kind of ship he's running. And then lastly, with the fear, the camo you get for a non-lethal victory is the spider camo. It's a yellowish brown with spider webs all over it. And its value is that it has a high camo index in every environment, no matter what. But like uh, the fears uh, usage of it, if you use it, it drains your stamina at a really fast rate. So again, this is one of the camos I don't ever really use at all um other than just to you know fuck around hey i got a new camo what does it look like but i I rarely actually use it within the context of this game i'm amazed we got very almost no spider-man references through that whole thing from you very good (laughs) i'm I'm working on it i'm working on it i also want to say uh there's not a whole lot i mean the fear is like a more almost like a more cartoonish character than the pain even but I, i was just thinking about this while we were talking and i think the best way to describe both of their characters is that they're human pokemon they just yell their names a bunch. Oh, that's great. They have like one or two weird attributes that the whole character design is built off of. And then they just they have like three or four signature moves. And then that's it. They don't have any kind of, they're not like people. <laughs> they're not portrayed as humans. They just have like, they're just adversaries to defeat. But I, I like that because like you said, it, it kind of builds up later. Uh, including maybe the, in fact the next boss. Do you hear me, Snake? I... Am the end. I am here to send you to your ultimate fate. So the end, voiced by J. Grant Albrecht. And before we get into our traditional breakdown of the end, we should just preface it with this is supposed to be one of the greatest boss battles in all of video games, the greatest in all the Metal Gear Solid franchise. And I really can't disagree. I think it leverages every system and design aspect of this game remarkably well. The end is a pretty well-realized character for as little character as he actually has. And just the different ways you can play this battle, both in the kind of traditional systems that we've been exposed to so far, as well as just all sorts of off-the-wall types of ways to get around this battle or to help you beat this battle. Um, It's one of the most innovative in all of video games, and I think it's definitely earned its reputation as perhaps the best boss battle in any game. I would go as far as to say, I think Psycho Mantis is sort of the signature fight for the series, but I would go as far to say, if you needed to show someone what Metal Gear Solid is, you would show them the end. I mean, maybe you could, I I beat him in like 30 minutes this last time, which was pretty quick for me. I think it's just the purest distillation of what the series is supposed to be. Yeah. It's great. So getting into designs and concepts, uh, the end is the ancient sniper. He was born in 1860, uh, which, you know, is different from all the other Cobras who are kind of all born between like 1906 and 1914. And he is the veteran of many wars, which, you know, precedes World War uh, I even. So I'm guessing the Spanish-American War or... 
Prussian wars or I'm not a history guy, but uh, many wars he fought. (laughs) And he is considered the father of sniping. He doesn't use a spotter really besides his parrot. And he also has the most effective camouflage in the game, which you can earn. Uh, He supposedly is photosynthetic, uh, meaning he recovers his stamina from the sun, uh, which, you know, was kind of uh, built up as kind of like a mutant ability in this game. But in MGS5, they'll retcon this to say this is part of that parasite similar to the pain and the fear that give him this ability. It's the most open-ended boss fight of any of the boss fights in this game, possibly in any game, definitely in any Metal Gear game. And it's so open-ended that you can even skip it in a couple different ways. And Kojima initially wanted this battle to last a week. Um, so that like he really wanted you to like spend like days fighting the end. And, you know, it didn't really come together as a good concept. But then that's that'll explain why there's some uh, weird Easter eggs in terms of if you save and don't play for a week, it'll affect the outcome of this battle, which we'll get into in a second. And the whole idea of Big Boss being this great tracker um, is kind of born here. Um, In MGS4, when uh, Old Snake has to do a little bit of tracking in South America, he specifically mentions that I'm not a tracker like Big Boss. And prior to the events of Operation Snake Eater, uh, Big Boss uh, or Naked Snake says he's mostly been trained in uh, urban environments and military environments. So um, the whole idea of Snake really becoming like a tracker and one with nature is kind of bored in this boss battle here. Um, and the end's design is a holdover from MGS2, not unlike the fear in some regards. Um, in that game, there was supposed to be a sniper called Old Boy who had most of the same trappings as the end. And in fact, uh, in this game, MGS3, the end was originally titled The Doom, uh, but they changed that because of the game called Doom and they just didn't want to overlap there. Which is very funny to think about because I don't think Doom is anything like this. I mean, I guess it's reasonably well known in Japan because it was the big ROM game of the 90s, but it wasn't like, like I don't think it was like a massive hit there. And uh, unlike most of the other boss battles, there is no musical light motif to the end because you actually have to rely on sound and nature and the ambient noise to help you uh, get through this battle, which we'll talk about in a second. And before we get into the battle, we were talking uh, earlier in this episode about what it means for Snake to consume the end. And uh, I'll let you go first, because you said you had some stuff you wanted to say about this. He, he, he think more than anyone, when I, when I called the, the Kobe unit, like the, the legendary heroes, he's kind of the legendary. He's portrayed, I think, as the most honorable of I agree. the Cobras, where like, because he doesn't kill you. That's one thing. He doesn't, he will not kill Snake. Yes, he uses non-lethal rounds, yeah. I think he's the one Snake respects the most, because he he just, he believes it's like a, this is his last fight. This is no matter what. And he, he wants to have a, it's, it's hard to describe, but I think you understand what I mean. Mm-hmm. And like, I really think he's supposed to represent as far as like this pre military industrial complex sort of soldier, where it's like, he's fighting for what he believes in. He has a purpose. He's presented as almost like a completely self-sufficient warrior. Warrior is the word I want to use, not soldier. Yeah. And I think if you compare him to, let's say, the other three living members of the Cobra unit, he doesn't seem like fucked up in the head, like the fury or the fear or the pain. No. He seems just like an old guy who's really good at the thing he does. Um, he doesn't have that kind of weird uh, personality as the rest of them do. But I think that's why, I mean, he's called the the end is supposed to be like, I think it's supposed to be a, a cool, like intimidating, badass sniper name. But I really feel like he's supposed to represent the end of that kind of soldier. And he's being destroyed by Snake, who is, again, I, I think it's one of the strongest thematic parts of the game is that Snake 
Snake is not, he doesn't have an emotion to fight with. He is just a blank, empty vessel to be used and, and discarded by his by his government. I think he's supposed to represent, one of the reasons this is the Vietnam game, I think he's, Snake is specifically supposed to represent the new soldier. Sort of the American attitude towards soldiers, towards troops that sort of came out of Vietnam. Because up to that point, even World War One, I, I think we could, as like a collective, our collective identity uh, of the troops was that they were defending us. And I know that that's still part of the rhetoric, mm-hmm. especially the conservative rhetoric. But I, especially in Vietnam, I, I really feel like that it's harder to make that justification. Like, and I feel like Snake is supposed to represent that shift in American ideology. And that was really a Cold War shift too, because it, again, it wasn't. I know that the American government was fairly successful in painting the Cold War as like a necessary evil, but I do feel like at least on an academic level, the American public sort of understood like, no, this is for profit. Like, we're doing this for profit. For capitalism. We're not fighting any, there's no great cause. We won. You know, we, we already won. We're not defending our borders. We've never been, we haven't been invaded in 150 years at this point. I almost said never. I well, forgot about the War of 1812 again. Um, <laughs> but yeah, at this point, we're securing the world for American hegemony it's no longer yes. a battle in the same way and snake i feel like represents that shift in um, the american soldier yeah where it's like he, he just kind of an empty vessel and him killing the end feels like it's a it's almost tragic uh, i don't want to say it's sadder than the sorrow because that's all no. about sadness but yeah well especially okay i don't think him killing i think him defeating the end in single combat there's something honorable to that i think the end but that that's where i think the uh i mean it's it's one of the weirder characterizations in the game is if you save, if you do the, the exploit where you save and wait two, is it a week or two weeks? And he dies of it's a week, a week. He dies of old age and snakes mad. Snake is almost, yeah, he's like sad that he wasn't able, he's mad at himself for not giving the end a proper fight. And he doesn't feel like that. But if Volgan died when he wanted to fight him, he'd be happy. He'd be like, yeah, fuck that guy. Um, yeah. Aside from, aside from the, the boss, it's the only character I feel like snake is, like feels that deserves to be fought. I guess Ocelot, but Ocelot's more of a playful thing. Mm-hmm. And then the sorrow, he doesn't fight. That you can't call that a fight. Yeah, and the sorrow's dead, so it's different. Yeah, it's a really weird. I, this time, I tried to pay attention to Snake's reaction to the end because it it really feels like he kind of understands this, mm-hmm. or that he understands that the end is a kind of soldier that he is not, and he seems to be sort of sad about it. The character arc is that you know, by Peace Walker, Snake, that's what he is. He is the only great soldier left. He's the only one who believes in anything. He's the only one who has a purpose. I feel like that starts here. I feel like from this point to the rest of the game, he's no longer doing his job, but he's like doing the solid snake arc of like, what do I believe in? What am I fighting for? What was she fighting for? You know, mm-hmm. love blooming on battlefields, all that. And, and things of that nature, Max Kellerman. <laughs> I want to throw out, uh, so this is something that kind of jumped in my mind when we were talking about this earlier, but I, I want to add in another interpretation possibly. We talked mm-hmm. about, a snake killing the fear or killing the ad. Like, you know, it's him slaying those emotions for wars to come or whatever. Yeah. So that he doesn't have pain or he doesn't have fear. So if you kill the end, what do you have? You have infinity. You have endlessness. And what is the thing that MGSV is all about? Endless war. Yeah. And that's really what all these games are about. MGS4, um, you know, the war economy. Um, in a way, wars of the past had finite endpoints. But ever since Vietnam, and especially since the war on terror and the Iraq war, forever war is more the common thing as opposed to a finite war. And I kind and that kind of reflects the proxy wars of the post-Cold War era, as well as just ongoing American imperialism that we're always at war pushing our, you know, needs or whatever 
will further American interests. We, I mean, we hear that in the news basically every day. I, mean, I think earlier today I read something that we're not going to give the vaccine for COVID to Venezuela because that's not in American interests, which, you know, fuck you, American government. Let yeah, me just say that yeah. right there. What are American interests? Amer- American interests are doing more war. Yeah. That's what American interests are. Yeah. And if you kill a bunch of brown people. <laughs> or trafficking drugs. <laughs> We love doing that. Yeah. Jesus. The U.S. Army is the one of the biggest drug traffickers in the world. Maybe, in fact, the largest drug trafficker in, in, in the world. And on that cherry note, <laughs> let's get into the boss fight itself. But like always, we'll start with some of the preceding maps before you get to the end. Um, the maps before the end are called Sviatogornij, which, you know, take my pronunciation with a grain of salt. But these are kind of the last really good jungly maps for stealthing in the game, unless you forget the Ocelot Tracker in you a little bit later on. Don't worry about it. We'll get to it. Or you purposely don't take the Ocelot Tracker off because you want to do more jungle stealthing. Can you guess which one I did and which one Brian did? <laughs> which one of us forgot and which one of us intentionally? But also in these preceding maps, there are a bunch of different paths you can do to get around. Um, there's different elevations. There's lots of guards, lots of logs, lots of trees. It's just some really great open maps with a fair amount of soldiers that you can really fuck around with. To the east of the maps where you fight the end, there's a separate map where there's a food depot. Um, there's also uh, a little hut or shack or base, whatever you want to call it, where you can pick up the M63, the machine gun, uh, which is the strongest like bullet weapon you can get in this game. Yeah. Um, I guess not including like the Patriot, perhaps, but uh, it's definitely like the the machine gun you will be using when you're like on the bikes later in the game or something like. That. And uh, there's also just a lot of stuff. Uh, a lot of stuff to find in this extra map uh, to the east of the end battle. Um, there's all sorts of suppressors. There's those little frog things you can shoot. Um, there's health items. So uh, it's definitely a map you're going to want to hit before hitting the boss uh, fight of the end. So getting into the end battle itself, um, let's talk about some of the tactics the end uses. First of all, his sniper rifle is the classic Russian sniper rifle, the Mosin Nagant uh, which a lot of you might be familiar with if you've ever seen the movie Enemy at the Gates with Jude Law and Ed Harris and Rachel Weisz. Don't want to forget her. And Joseph Fiennes. Oh, yeah, he's great, too. Don't forget Joseph Fiennes. People do. Good actor. Um, and the sniper scope that they use in that movie is the very same sniper scope you have when you're aiming here. I assume it's the actual, you know, real-world sniper scope look. Mm-hmm. Um, but I always do like that touch, and it becomes one of those things where obvious Kojima probably got that idea from this movie. So um, his Mosin Nagant has actually been uh, customized uh, to use non-lethal trank rounds, which we mentioned before. So when he hits you, he it drains your stamina, not your life. And if he drains your stamina down to zero instead of dying or game over, you are taken back to a prison cell in Granini Gorky, um, the science lab where you met Granin and all that stuff. So um, you do have to backtrack quite a bit if that happens to you. The Trank Rounds also require you to dive into the Cure menu again and pull them out because they stick in you, and if you let them stick in you, they're just going to keep draining your stamina. Um, He also employs Stun Grenades, which again are a non-lethal weapon. He usually uses this if you like sneak up on him and he's trying to get away. He uses that to disorient you. And then he also has extremely good camo. It's more effective for you when you actually get it because you can generally still see him uh, when you're using, you know, fighting him in the game. But uh, he is known as an expert camouflager more so than his uh, Cobra counterparts. And a fun thing that he does is he stalks you in the same way that you can stalk him. And if he sneaks up behind you and holds you up like you can to enemy guards, uh, you go straight to jail. Uh, just like uh, if he got your stamina down to zero, which I think is a really fun concept. And again, you see the mechanics and systems that affect Snake's gameplay are being built into all these other boss fights and uh, game characters. 
Yeah, as, as he's a really impressive piece of AI. Also, I feel like like it's really like it's it's it feels like you're you're going against someone with your equivalent skills, not a computer player. I mean, there's ways like I I played uh, I pressured him like I I didn't hold him up. I, I kind of thought about doing that, but I was just like I'll just kill him. I just like hunted him. I, I tracked him and like aggressively went after him and shot him and then chased him around. But so that felt kind of rote like a little bit because he just kind of runs the same like five places in every map. But the first few times, I mean, the first time I played him, it was a straight up sniper fight. That was fun. The second time I played him, I kind of did that moving around, relocating. And he almost there were two or three times where he was right behind me when I realized where he was and I had to run away from him. Yeah, there'll be times where it's like I know where he is and I think I'm sneaking up behind him. But when I go, he's actually facing me instead of, you know, facing like the majority of the map. Uh, so it, it can be tricky. Because he heard you. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so uh, getting into the tactics and techniques in terms of fighting the end, uh, just be prepared. This can be a longer battle. I think like 30 minutes is the shortest I ever get down uh, to it. Oh, I did mention one of his other maneuvers is uh, if you're going for a non-lethal kill, like I always do again, uh, he can regain his stamina if he goes into the sunlight and sits there. Yep. Um, you'll see a giant sunbeam come down from the sky, and he's like almost doing like a prayer or a meditation in that moment. You can definitely ease... He's gathering the Earth's energy for a spirit bomb. That's what he's doing. Yes. <laughs> um, and you can easily knock him out or hit him while he's doing this, but it can be very frustrating if you get his stamina down halfway, and then he finds a patch of sunlight and then gets his stamina all the way basically back up to full. It could add almost another half hour or an hour to the battle. Like Brian mentioned, you can do this as a traditional sniper battle. We mentioned that you can acquire the SVD sniper rifle uh, before you fight the fear, but there's also a weapons depot in the southern map uh, fighting the end, and the SVD will appear there if you did not acquire it earlier. Um, my preferred method is stalking him and holding him up. You have to use the stalk walk or the sneak walk using the D-pad to really get behind him, and then you hold him up using a pistol. And then he'll put his hands behind his head, he'll lay down on the floor, and he'll be like, wow, you really are the son of the boss or something like that. Um, so it's pretty cool. Uh, other tactics you can use is that if you use your thermal goggles, you can theoretically spot him, but they're very useful for spotting his footsteps and using that to track, which is something you'll do again in MGS4. And then a fun aspect of this uh, battle is that uh, we mentioned sunlight in terms of it, you know, rejuvenating the end, but it also causes reflections off your sniper scope or your binoculars. Um, so, and this applies to both you and the end. So you can often catch a, you know, a little glint of light off the snipers uh, or off the end's sniper rifle. Mm -hmm. But also if you're using the binoculars or sniper scope for too long looking at him, um, you'll eventually cast a little reflection. You'll get a little bit of that J.J. Abrams lens flare uh, on the sniper scope. And then the end will be like, ah, found you. And then he'll usually get in a shot or two. So um, I really like that light um, has a real effect uh, in this battle. Another thing I really like to use I, is the D-mic, uh, the directional microphone, which you used in MGS2 to uh, you know, locate uh, Richard Ames. But here you can use it to help you locate if the end is on a map and in which direction he is. Um, if you bring it up and point it around, you could, you could possibly hear him breathing or he'll just be saying, this is the end. Uh, which is a way to help you locate him. Hear me, Snake. Yeah, I, I did that a lot the first fight, for sure. And this is where we can have a little bit of fun. We can talk about all the other weird ways you can take on this battle. Um, the first one I want to mention is the Konami code. Um, you know, veteran gamers will know the Konami code as what? Up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, 
A, B, A, select start, something like that. Mm-hmm. So if you pause the game and go to your, you know, survival viewer and then go to the maps, uh, if you enter the Konami code, I think with the PlayStation, you use the square and the triangle button in place of A and B. Um, but if you enter the Konami code, it will actually mark where the end is on the map, which is really cool. Going further on, and this is something I've never done, but I know Brian has done, is you can capture his parrot. And then if you release it, it will fly to him and give away his location. I didn't release it, though. I just captured the bird and kept it. Uh, if you kill his bird, he becomes signi- he goes, like really aggressive, but it's also uh, he's less good at tracking you. So he just like runs around looking for you. And it's like if you want to end the fight really quickly, it's actually probably the best way to do it. Kill his bird or eat his bird. That would probably piss him off. <laughs> And then just kind of wait for him and like lay traps for him, lay claymores and stuff. I, I didn't feel like killing the bird. Like, yeah, yeah. The first thing I did was I went to that depot where the SVD is, and the bird is usually sitting up there, and I just tranked him and, and captured him. Uh, we do not believe in bird violence on this podcast. So, um, another way you can approach this battle so if you enter the boss um, arena and then you go to save your game, paramedic will be like, I don't know if you should save right now, Snake. It feels kind of weird. Um, and Snake's like, oh, I'm sure it's probably fine. So what happens is um, if you save the game and you return within a day or two, no big deal. You're pretty much just picking up with the boss fight where you left it. If you return after two days, you actually go straight to jail. <laughs> you end up in that uh, prison cell in Granini Gorky, and you have to backtrack your way back to the end boss fight. And then if you wait for more than five days, I think we said a week before, but it's actually five days, um, then the and dies of old age. And when you uh, return to the game, you see Snake sneaking up to the end in a cutscene. but then he realizes that the end kind of died, like sitting up in a sniping position. He kind of knocks him over. And then he has a call with Zero about, oh, I really wanted to fight this guy. Um, and it sucks that he can't. So what you kind of mentioned earlier. It's less like a, like Snake being like, oh, damn, I wanted to, like Goku style, like, damn, he was strong. And more like he's he's like mad at himself for letting the end down. He's like, yeah, oh. he disappointed the end, I think is exactly right. And um, we say that you can wait five days for this to happen, but the actual more common trick is that you can go into your PlayStation um, you know, time and date settings, and you can actually set it for a week ahead and then return to the battle so you don't actually have to take five days off from playing the game uh, like that. So very fun. And again, that's uh, Kojima and his team utilizing every aspect of the PlayStation or, you know, the console. I know this game came out on Xbox as well. Um, using every aspect of it in some meaningful way in the game. Again, breaking that space between the game and the player, which we love to talk about. And then the other famous way that you can take on the end or not take on the end, rather, is when you see him at the warehouse docks in a cutscene we'll talk about next week. Um, you can actually snipe him if you pick up the SVD in the earliest possible spot. Um, what happens is there's a cutscene. The end is kind of left on the pier at the end of the cutscene, and a guard will come and roll him back inside. But you have about five seconds where you can just bust out your sniper rifle and just pop him with two or three shots. It'll kill him, and uh, his the wheel from his wheelchair will come flying at you, which you'll need to avoid. But um, again, if you do this and you call Zero about it... Uh, Snake will have that same lamentations like, ah, oh, but I really kind of wanted to fight him. Again, in terms of, you know, for the end's sake, not necessarily for Snake's sake, but he also kind of feels bad that you kind of cheated it um, that way. And I guess you should point out that you do get an extra trophy if, um, what's it called? You snipe him at the docks, like a yeah. PlayStation trophy, not like in the game or anything. The old fun bit of characterization is Zero is just like, who cares? Mm-hmm. It's, just, it's a good way of painting like, 
is for as much as Zero tries to romanticize combat, he's also like kind of a cruel pragmatist in a lot of ways. Whereas Snake, I think, thinks of himself as like an honorable warrior, even though, like I've said several times, this game will prove that he's not, and that he's actually sort of an empty vessel. But I think him realizing that about himself is sort of the, his character arc in a lot of the game. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point because we talked about how Zero loves all those James Bond and classic war movies, but he's still very cold about all this stuff. There doesn't seem to be any, like, I, I don't know what the word for it is here, but I think you hit it right on the head that his approach and Snake's approach are so different, and that's obviously a cause of the major rift between the two and the conflict of the saga. So um, I like the very little ways that they show the differences between the two characters. So what happens if you kill the end at the warehouse docks is that when you reach his boss arena of three maps, um, instead you find the ocelot unit. And you don't actually have to kill the ocelot units in these maps. You just have to uh, sneak past them. But it is pretty fun to try and take them all out. Um, Some of the guards are, like, sniping. Uh, Some of the ocelot unit are just patrolling on, like, regular kind of circuits. And there's 20 members over the three total maps. I believe there's eight on the first map, seven on the northern map, and five on the western map. So um, I like to use this just as a fun stealth or melee exercise if I'm bored. Um, It's just a great way to play with all the mechanics and have plenty of guys to shoot around if you don't want to fight the end. So um, I did it this time. It's pretty fun. I recommend that you all do it at least once. Talking about the boss arena just a little bit more, it's called Socrovino. Um, three maps, which we mentioned, and it's easy, easily the largest boss fight space in this game. I said series, but I just realized that the Sahelanthropus fight in MGSV probably has the biggest map associated with. The quiet boss area might be close to as large, too, like as far as real estate. Mm-hmm, that's fair, too. Um, and there's lots of hills and rivers, so there's a lot of different geography on these maps. Um, there's a weapons depot in the south, which we mentioned, where you can pick up the SVD sniper rifle if you hadn't. And there's also lots of animals for food because, like I said, um, this battle will usually take at least 30 minutes, maybe over an hour or so. Um, so you're definitely going to have to refuel with uh, food and stamina and all that. Um, and this is one of the maps where you can find the Markor, which is the goat or like a cabra type species. And Markor, again, translates to snake eater, just like, uh, you know, the genus of King Cobra and the many other uh, things that uh, translate to snake eater that we've mentioned. I think the west area is my favorite map in the game. Mm-hmm. Just like to, look, to look at. It's beautiful. With the river running through it, it's great. Yeah. Um, that's also the map you generally tend to get a little more rain, Yeah, uh, which makes for its own little funness. And it's a great spot to use the rain camo, which you can pick up in earlier maps as well. Now, speaking of camo, uh, the end is a little bit different than his Cobra counterparts in that you don't get his camo if you beat him non-lethally. If you kill him non-lethally, you get his Mosin Nagant, his non-lethal sniper rifle, which is also worthwhile to get. Yes, very much. But uh, what you want to do is to get his camo, you have to sneak up behind him and hold him up, which I mentioned is one of my favorite tactics. Uh, You hold him up, and then you kind of point your gun at his head, and he'll say, I don't think so. And then I kind of just like take his aim off his head and then move it back to his head. And after a couple more times, he'll be like, fine, take it. And then he'll give you... Uh, his camo, which is drop like an item, um, and then he'll also drop a stun grenade and scurry off like he would normally. If you already have the moss camo from previous playthroughs, he just dumps like some rations and food for you if you hold him up and shake him down like that. Now going into the moss camo, um, it's got a patterned green grassy look, 
And uh, one of its side benefits is that, much like the end, if you're in sunlight, it will regenerate your stamina, which will help you regenerate your health, which makes it very useful. It's a great way to uh, you know, rebuild stamina and health if you're trying not to use health items. And it's also the only camo that can get you to 100% camo index on any map. You do have to pair it with the right face camo. It's usually like the forest camo because it's made for jungle or woodsy environments. Um, but it's very effective in the maps uh, of the end boss fight as well as the ones before the end boss fight. So that's like Sfjorta Gornish and then so- Sokrovino that we're in right now. And I think I mentioned it in a previous episode, but the introductory cutscene to the end, if you're wearing the moss camo as you enter the boss fight, you literally, like, Snake's camo just blends in with the background perfectly. Like, you barely even see his body. It's so great. Um, and then it's also not just effective in these maps, but there are patches of moss throughout the game where you can also hit that 100% camo index. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a couple places before you even get to Rasviat in the you know opening parts of the game. Outside of Granini Gorky, there's a ton of uh, moss patches as well. So this is one of the more useful ones, definitely more useful than uh, the fear and the pains uh, camo that we received already. I am the fury. The flames of my rage will incinerate you. I came back from space. As I returned, I had one vision. The world set ablaze. The Fury. Who is voiced by Richard Doyle. And you might recognize Richard Doyle because he's also the voice of Big Boss in Metal Gear Solid 4, which is a fun little connection between the two. So the Fury is known as the Flame Soldier. And he's a native Russian who supposedly went to space before Yuri Gagarin did in the first official manned space flight or the first manned space flight in the real world. Um, but there was some sort of accident on re-entry and his ship was consumed by flames. And the, this is all because the uh, Fury was meant to play on the space themes that we mentioned were originally part of the main thrust of this game before it got turned into this nuclear pre-Metal Gear kind of story that we have. And then he does a lot of, uh, he invokes a Space Oddity, the David Bowie song, when he dies as well. Um, that whole mission control um, aspects and stuff, I'm coming home. Uh, he says a lot of stuff that's a direct lift from the song, which again was considered to be the ending song for this game. And when he dies, he kind of like turns into this big flaming head of death, which is supposed to be an homage to The Mummy, which, you know, is actually a pretty enjoyable movie, movie the original one with Brendan Fraser. Um, but it actually honestly reminds me of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2 uh, when they kill, I think, Ruina, Ravensclaw's last diadem. God, I feel like such a nerd repeating all this stuff now. <laughs> uh, but it's basically like uh, when they kill that Horcrux, uh, Voldemort, Voldemort's like fire-shaped head kind of explodes out of it and chases them until they leave the Room of Requirement. I promise these will be the last times I ever mention Harry Potter <laughs> on this podcast. I I can't believe how quickly I was able to recall Ruina Ravenclaw's last diadem. Brian can vouch for you that I have none of those details in my show notes here. Um, I just straight pulled that out because at one point I really loved Harry Potter. Now I don't really care about it that much and I fucking hate J.K. Rowling. So anyways, uh, all Harry Potter things aside, uh, let's talk about the preceding maps before you get to the Fury. So um, the maps between the end and the fury are actually a series of mountain maps. Um, You make your way to the top of a mountain, and we'll describe how you get to the top of a mountain next time. But uh, 
when you get up to the mountains, I find that the animals camo is just amazing here. Um, it gets you up to 95% uh, camo index. It's great for keeping your steady aim because it's a lot of uneven ground and guards walking through little pits and crevices. Um, so keeping that steady uh, you know, aiming hand really helps. There's also a couple of those little frog things that you can shoot for bonuses. Uh, so it's a really great camo for this area. And there's not a lot of cover either, which is why you basically have to kind of slink around uh, through uh, these maps. And we start seeing enemies with a lot more powerful weapons here. Um, the first couple maps, you'll see enemies with RPGs or rocket-propelled grenades, which is basically the strongest explosive weapon you can get in this game. Um, and then later on in the later maps in the mountains, uh, some of the troops will even have flamethrowers, which is also kind of building up to the battle with the Fury. There's all sorts of... Uh, kind of new flora and fauna here, the most notable of which are vultures, which are really great to hunt for food because if you uh, take one out, you actually get two uh, food items from them, not just one. It's, I think, similar to the alligators, perhaps, uh, where you just get a lot more meat off them than you do off of, like, snakes and rabbits and things like that. Um, we mentioned previously that um, there are helicopters that may be haranguing you during several of these maps. Um, there's definitely going to be... Uh, a helicopter bothering you during the last of the three mountain maps. And if you don't destroy the helicopter in the base before the ocelot fight, you will also have a helicopter on the second map in this area. If you do destroy that helicopter uh, before you get here, um, instead you'll come across a lot more guards on those hovercrafts, um, kind of making up for the coverage that the helicopter would normally provide. So the second map here also introduces a little more verticality where you're basically walking or making your way up a mountainside or a cliffside. Um, so you're basically going straight up, which is something that's really only seen in the warehouse map we described earlier. Usually you're going, you know, north to south or south to north. Um, but this one you're going just straight up, which is kind of neat. And in the last map, we just because we like to highlight this, there is a food and medicine depot where, um, you know, you can do your regular thing, damage it, make the guards be hungry and all that good stuff. And then between the mountain maps and the Fury boss, um, there is a couple tunnels, the tunnels to Groznygrad. Uh, there's not really much to speak here. It's just all internal environments, no enemies. It's just a place where you can stack up on all the ammo and equipment that you're going to need for this next boss fight. Yeah, you will need those that equipment if you're unless you're really good at this game, which I'm pretty good at this game. But yeah, it's a it, we'll talk about it. Yeah, uh, as we dive into the Fury boss fight, I will say to me this is the hardest boss fight in the game, or the one that's most frustrating at least. Yes, because um, you know theoretically the boss can be you know hard, but I enjoy that more than you know kind of grinding this one out because this one can get really frustrating after a number of times. So the Fury, he's a he's in a Soviet cosmonaut suit. Uh, and has a jetpack. Um, that suit renders him impervious to flame-based weapons, such as like uh, the white phosphorus grenades. Um, however, that suit can be torn, which then does make him vulnerable to fire weapons. Uh, he, use, he has a flamethrower that uses jet fuel, which is different than the flamethrowers that the guards uh, previously used. Um, and the whole idea is that uh, the fire lasts longer. It's technically liquid rocket fuel, presumed to be a mixture of unsymmetrical dimethylhydrazine and nitrogen tetrazide that continue to burn long after it's been ignited. 
whew, that's as much science as I've done in like 20 years. <laughs> um, and the, the other thing I'll mention about the Fury is that he can just literally haul ass. Uh, for a big guy with all this equipment strapped to him, he makes his way around the maps pretty well, and that's without even using his jetpack booster. And when he uses that jetpack booster, he can get right on you from over 30 or 50 yards away, like in a heartbeat. So, And there is a certain lineage of the big, boss not big boss of a giant uh, large bosses yeah yeah a large adult son of the boss uh (laughs) who can like kind of motor around their boss arena because we saw that with vulcan raven he had that giant uh, minigun attached to him i know it's called a minigun even though it's like a whatever um but you know he has that thing but he hauls ass across that uh freezer and uh, shadow moses and then you have fat man on his rollerblades of course in, fat man yeah in big shell so um the big guy who can haul ass is a major meme of the metal gear solid large adult sons we'd love to see him uh getting into the tactics and techniques in uh fighting the fury um i think the first one to mention is that you should use your night vision goggles because the map is generally very dark and you usually want to be as far away from the Fury as possible because of his fire weapons. So you want, using the night vision goggles to see where he is on the opposite side of the map is often very useful. Now, if you catch on fire, um, you can, uh, what's it called, change your clothes, like go into your survival viewer, change your camo, and that will actually get rid of the fire that was burning on you, which kind of makes sense. Um, it's very useful. And Honestly, this becomes the hardest part of this boss fight is managing all the fire because yeah. um, that, that stuff burns. Uh, you have to actually cure yourself when you get burned by the fire as well. So um, you definitely want to do everything you can to avoid your exposure to fire, both in this game and in real life. Kids don't play with fire. There are a couple water pipes uh, hanging around uh, the arena, which you can you know shoot and it'll spray some water and put out the fire. I did want to highlight this because I didn't know this was in the game until my most recent playthrough, but this is kind of foreshadowing or at least something that'll be more fleshed out when you get to the man on fire fight- fights in MGSV. Personally, uh, this is the hardest boss fight for me to do non-lethally. It's one of the only places in uh, initial playthroughs where I'd actually have to use the life medicine uh, to heal myself. Usually I'm fine just replenishing my stamina and letting that, you know, regenerate my life through food. Um, but, you know, the way the Fury does damage on you, uh, the way he's constantly on you, it's one of the few places where I actually just have to straight up use life medicine to give myself more life. Um, it gets easier on second time around because if I use his uh, fire camo, then, you know, his fire attacks are very much nullified, which we'll talk about in a second. Uh, the boss arena here is basically kind of four long hallways in this underground tunnel. Um, and there's various spots like windows and doorways where you can hop from one uh, hallway to the next one over. There's a little bit of varying elevation between the hallways, but it's all flat ground because it's all concrete, man-made kind of stuff. And it's very dark. That's why I emphasized using the night vision goggles, but it just works really well with the Fury's uh, fire powers and his flamethrower and his jetpack. It really accentuates him um, in this battle arena, which makes it just as much of a struggle as it can be to actually fight him. It is one of the most visually arresting boss fights. Yeah, it's it's very it's very distinct looking. Yeah, and then uh, the last thing we usually we usually cover with these bosses is the camo you get for the non lethal victory, which you're definitely going to have to earn here. But uh, unfortunately, it doesn't pay off that much because you get the fire camo, which is red and orange and black, which you know kind of looks like flames. And it reduces all damage from fire and explosions. 
Um, the reason I said it's not that useful is because most of the fire-based enemies you've already passed at this point in the game now. Yeah. Um, it, it will definitely be more useful when you come back on subsequent playthroughs, uh, specifically against the flamethrower troopers in the mountains and then uh, the, the fury battle again as well. He's kind of a confusing character because, like, I don't know. So he's supposed to be the first Russian in space, but not the first person because the boss is the first person in space. It's, it's kind of a redundant backstory. They both have this formative experience of them going into space and having an emotional reaction to it. And, like, his is just a lot less interesting because <laughs> his is just, I went into space and it pissed me off. And, like, okay. <laughs> Like it's funny. I, I laugh every. I laugh every time. He's got such an over the top performance too. I always thought it would make more sense to me if like the boss and the fury went into space together. Yeah, because we know the uh, boss. Uh, you know, she got radiation poisoning and all that stuff or exposure from going to space. She didn't quite have that fiery descent, which is, I guess, what separates their experiences. But otherwise, their stories are basically the same, except one came back pissed off and one came back wanting to unite the world. So. Um, but I do agree. I, they retread it quite a bit. You you don't get that part of the, her backstory yet, so it's it almost like overwrites the fury. It's just like oh, okay, that's this is the space person then. Mm-hmm. But I also appreciate I appreciate the Bowie stuff, and I, I like like I think he's a cool looking character. Like his design, he actually kind of looks more like a Death Stranding character in a lot of ways than uh, than the Metal character. Absolutely, yeah. But um, yeah, I don't know. The Fury's it's kind of an annoying fight, but it's it's. It is also to the point in the game where you have a lot of gear and a lot of supplies. Yeah, usually, and you're about to go into to uh, Groznygrad, and then you're about to get a lot more stuff there. So, like, it's 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 well placed in the game. It's just the fire dealing with the fire is is annoying. Yeah, but it, it is ramp, ratcheting up that difficulty because um, you know the next boss fights are going to be Volg. I mean. We'll talk about the Sara, but like, you know, Volgan and the boss are also, you know, at least a little bit tougher than some of the earlier fights. So yeah. it's kind of making sure that you're ready to be able to just win in a straight up, you know, gunfight, which you'll have to do soon. So I am the sorrow. Like you, I too am filled with sadness. The Sorrow, voiced by David Thomas. So between the Fury and the Sorrow fight, lots happens. Uh, Sokolov dies, maybe. Snake loses an eye. The focus shifts to the Philosopher's Legacy. There's just so much, and we'll get into all of that next time. What's important for setting up the Sorrow battle is that Snake is near death, unarmed, and has just leapt from the top of a dam, fugitive style, to escape Ocelot. The Sorrow is known as the Spirit Medium Soldier which uh, he's able to summon the dead in battle to give him info, increase his abilities as he absorbs their warrior spirit. And he is supposed to be visually based on Ed Harris from The Rock, and that's straight from Kojima's mouth. He is the father of Ocelot and lover of the boss. And he, despite being a Russian and working for the Soviet, he was always loyal to the boss no matter what when push came to sub. And that's why when they were forced to face down each other, one must live, one must die, he was the one who's like, you kill me because, um, you know, I'm loyal to you. I love you. This is what's best for our son. And that's kind of the start of this cycle of violence, the snake eating itself. That is the Metal Gear saga. And one thing I like to think about is the fact that the boss kills uh, the sorrow by shooting him through the left eye, which um, is reflected because whenever the sorrow's talking near the end, his left uh, glass frames will shatter. And uh, it's the opposite of Snake, where, you know, Snake, uh, Big Boss will lose his right eye by the end of this game. Um, the Sorrow lost his left eye, but he actually died of his wounds. But I like that symmetry um, between the two. And then uh, 
we mentioned this a couple of times, but probably not enough, but you actually see the sorrow throughout the game. Uh, like his spirit hanging over, like usually the boss, and it's usually when it's raining. You see him in Virtuous Mission. You see him at the warehouse docks. But he's someone that you've been see. You see him when you uh, rescue Sokolov during Operation Snake Eater. So he's kind of around uh, this entire time, kind of, you know, I don't know how to describe, but he's almost like a guardian angel in a way because he does give you a lot of useful information. In in like playing through this uh, after you play through the first time, it's kind of a spoiler, like because he's. Loyal to the boss, he's doing. He's helping you. He's helping Snake. It kind of spoils that that's actually the boss's goal is to help Snake. Like it's not. She's not actually an antagonist. Um, yeah, he's very useful. He gives you a bunch of. He gives you codec things a lot. He'll. Um, he gives you the nice. I always like when he gives you the uh, the running countdown of the the C four or the C. What is, that's always fun. The C three, right? Yes. Yeah, I, I enjoy that. Um, it's implied that he actually kills. Well, quote unquote, kills. Vulgan, mm-hmm. like by summoning the thunders uh, to kill him, the, light, the lightning to kill him. Uh, yeah, the sorrow I think is one of my favorite characters in this game. So much they say that he, him being like forced into Metal Gear Solid Force plot, I actually don't mind. I because I, I just like seeing him. He's an interesting, the most explicitly supernatural character, mm-hmm. even more so than Psycho Man is for sure in the games because he's a ghost, and his fight is just an incredible like mechanical and thematic achievement. We're going to talk about in a minute here, I think. So. And uh, I did mention that, uh, you know, the boss kills the sorrow. Uh, I forgot to mention, or at least I didn't highlight it in this episode, that this all happens in Salino Yars. This all happens in the same setting that Operation Snake Eater and Virtuous Mission take place in. Uh, you can see the sorrow's body uh, at the end of Virtuous Mission after Snake's been thrown through the bridge. Um, I have some ideas or theories why, um, you know, this specific spot is, you know, the same place, the same thing is happening over and over again. Um, but I kind of want to think on it more before I dish on that, maybe in our finale on Metal Gear Solid 3. Yeah. Um, so getting into uh, some of the themes and concepts here, before we get into uh, the sorrow, I kind of want to talk about what this means for Big Boss or Naked Snake, um, because this is the last of the Cobras that you beat if we're not counting, you know, the boss herself. And before the sorrow, you're like kind of on the brink of death. You have no weapons. You're starving. You're hurt. You lost your eye. And fighting the sorrow is kind of like, you know, battling death or going to the land of the dead. But what happens afterwards is Naked Snake is reborn, you know, or possibly reborn as Big Boss after consuming the Cobras, maybe even. So it's really an important like marker for uh, Big Boss's character arc that he's kind of reborn after the Sorrow fight. And it's a culmination of all the Cobra unit fights up to this moment. But it feels like Big Boss starts here after you beat the Sorrow. This is the end of Act 2. Yes. It's like the perfect pinpoint of it, uh, the end of Act 2. Yeah. A- and, uh, in a reprise of the Liquid Snake monologue from MGS1, this is a chance for the game to once again confront the player with the killing they do and the killing they probably enjoy doing uh, during the course of this game. Uh, because as you're wading through uh, the river, all the soldiers you killed or at least died during the operation will come and try to haunt you with their ghosts. So. It's not even like a figurative. Like they literally show up. Like it's it's kind of frightening. Like there's very specific. If you slit someone's throat in CQC, you'll get someone who's got blood pouring out of their throat. And they'll like they'll yell about how they can't breathe at you. Uh, you know, guys killed by gun. I think I think. They try to, to transpose over where you shot someone to where the guys. I haven't like checked that specifically. Uh, there's even I did this one this time just to see it because I'd never seen it on the in the mountain pass. If you kill a soldier who's then eaten by a vulture, and then you kill and eat that vulture, 
that soldier will show up with the vulture on his shoulders and just yelling that you ate him, which is terrifying. Every Cobra member shows up, even if you didn't, you know, because they all exploded. Right. It's just like, there's so many, there's, there'll be guys like covered in bandages if they're burned. It's just like, it's really like they put a lot of work into it and it's, it makes it, it not only is it like disconcerting, but it makes the fight longer, it makes the experience longer the more people you've killed, which is really like punishing you. It's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, what's it called? Uh, one of the things I wanted to highlight was I think if you like shoot sol- soldiers in the balls, oh, yeah. um, they'll be holding onto their crotch and they'll say, I'm not a man anymore, um, which, you know. I have critiques of uh, biological essentialism, which I don't think is the point of this game or anything like that. Uh, But um, I do like, it's not just confronting you with your violence, but it's confronting you with your specific violence, Mm -hmm. Um, which is just sharpening what we saw in Metal Gear Solid 1, which was mostly just kind of told at you through that Liquid Snake monologue. But now you actually have to live in the misery that you created and you have to wade through it at the slowest possible speed. There's dead fish everywhere. Yeah. Um, it really, really makes you sit with the violence um, in a way that uh, the series has wanted to, but not really been able to in a gameplay way to do before. I think in a way that no game has ever done before or since. Like it yeah. explicitly confronts you with the, the people you've killed. It works. It works really well. It's also funny if you're playing a non-lethal because it's like a 90 second fight, <laughs> boss fight. Yeah, it's so quick. Uh, we'll get to that in a, a second here. Um, a couple other things I wanted to highlight before the fight itself uh, the Sorrow is one of the two members of the Cobra unit who does not get killed by the microbombs blowing them up. The other one is, of course, the boss at the end, or the Joy. Um, and uh, the Sorrow was actually known to carry the same gun as Naked Snake does here, the M1911A1, which, again, I think is pretty much cribbed from Ronin, is where uh, Kojima got that idea. But I do like that, um, what's it called, Big Boss carries the same gun um, in the same way that, you know, only one can live, one can die, and he's kind of carrying on the tradition of all the people uh, that came before him. Mm-hmm. So uh, getting into the boss fight and some of the preceding maps, we'll, we'll save the preceding maps for next time um, because they don't really have anything specifically to do with the Sorrow. No. Um, a lot of it is retreading uh, Groznygrad. Um, there's the flight in the sewers where you're basically just shooting a bunch of dogs. There's a whole fugitive homage, which if you know me, it's my favorite movie, so... I'm going to spend a lot of time next time going over that whole scene. So not a whole lot to go with the preceding maps. Getting into the boss battle itself, um, the first thing to notice is perhaps that the Sorrow has no life in his life bar, which makes sense because he's dead and you're not actually trying to kill him here. Um, He just kind of hovers at the top of the map as the various soldiers you've killed are sent to harangue you, or at least the ghosts of the soldiers you killed are there to harangue you. Uh, What you're doing is you're basically wading through this mangrove or this river, uh, whether it actually exists or is some kind of, you know, dream or, you know, surrealist uh, sequence. Uh, Not 100% sure, but uh, that's the arena more or less. And uh, the Cobra unit are the only... uh, Ghosts you have to see regardless of how you've been playing the game. Again, because even if you do the non-lethal kills, the microbombs are what kills them. And as Brian said, if you are playing the game non-lethally, this boss fight lasts all of 90 seconds at most. Um, Occasionally, the Sorrow will step back and shoot a ghost beam at you, for lack of a better word. It's just like this weird uh, tendril. It looks cool. It looks like uh, from the Abyss. Uh, That's a much better reference. And I was going to say it reminds me of Donnie Darko, to be honest. Yeah, no, also, yes. It's the same kind of visual design. Yeah, it's like that's just that kind of same like aqueous kind of like tendril that's like reaching out of the sorrow's body um, and trying to grab snake. It's pretty easy to dodge. 
Um, but if it does hit you, it just basically makes a scary flash face on your screen. I don't think it actually kills you or anything, um, but it is just kind of a nice little, you know, flourished, let's say, yeah, since it's yeah. not actually a mechanic or something like that. This soul fight is a flourish, so. Yeah, exactly. And we've talked about tactics or techniques. Yeah, obviously, the less people you kill, the shorter the encounter is. And we talked about the various ways that if you kill soldiers specific. In specific ways, that's reflected in their presence in this boss battle, which, again, the specificity of violence is very key to the themes here. And then one of the fun things you can do during this is you can call your support team, like Paramedic and Sigint and Zero, and they'll give you the traditional game over style. Snake, can you hear me? Snake! Snake! Um, in all their own voice actor voices, of course, but it's just really cool that, uh, you know, it's very meta in the sense that, like, those... That's what they would be saying if you actually died at any other point in the game. Um, but this is kind of your like death and rebirth moment for the character. So they kind of built that into the battle as well, which I really liked. Uh, getting into the boss arena, which again may or may not actually exist. It is one of the most metal moments of the game, at least the introduction to this boss battle. Because after you make that fugitive jump, uh, fugitive jump uh, you find Snake wading through a fiery mangrove. Uh, before the rain and the sorrow uh, comes to put out the fire and start the boss fight properly. I think the most obvious, uh, what's it called, reference here would be the River Styx that most people would recognize from Greek mythology. Yeah. But I think the more accurate and the more applicable to Kojima would be the River of Three Crossings or the Sanzu no Kawa, uh, which is a mythical river in Japanese Buddhism. And the story goes that before reaching the afterlife, the souls of the deceased must cross the river by one of the three crossing points, a bridge, a ford, or a stretch of deep snake-infested waters. The weight of one's offenses while alive determines which path an individual must take. So obviously you're a snake working through these quote-unquote snake-infested waters, whether you want to interpret that as the cobra unit or whatnot. Uh, but that's basically the path Snake is taking, and I think that's a more accurate reference or homage that Kojima is going for here. This may not may be completely coincidental, but I think there could be something to the. Uh, I think it's Chinese mythological the, the Nishiki carp, the carp, the carp in general that they want. I can't remember the exact reference. This is more Yakuza thing. That's where I'm getting it from. Carp are trying to leap up the waterfalls to become dragons. I wonder if that that's that's what the, the, that many fish are for. But I, I can't tell what kind of fish those are. I'm not a fish person. I just that just came into my head, and I think it's kind of interesting. I'm sure it's something Kojima is aware of. It's like a... No, that's really cool. It, it's like the River Styx, kind of. It's kind of a... It's kind of permeated outside of its own cultural context. And then, lastly, to wrap up the sorrow, we can talk about the camo you get. Uh, because this isn't really a battle like the other ones, there's really no non-lethal kills. Uh, what you need to do is basically when you get to the end of the, you know, your trek across these mangroves, um, you basically have to, you know touch the sorrow's body at the end he basically stays at the top of the map and you basically just walk into him and that will earn you the spirit camo at the end um following the fight which is kind of grayish and spotted um but its most useful uh aspects are the fact that it silences your footsteps you don't have to use the sneak walk to uh muffle your footsteps you can basically run or just use your you know yeah normal creeping to get behind people um i tend to use it a lot in the indoor environments because um no camo really works super great you know indoors or at least in like a, a fortified area like grozny grab like yeah. i think like the splitter camo is better at is best at 75 percent um, but I like to use a spirit camo, which is probably closer to 55 or 60% camo. But just silencing the footsteps allows me to get across these maps a lot quicker. Another bonus is that if you choke out soldiers while wearing the 
uh, spirit camo, it actually restores your stamina, which is a very useful way, again, to restore your stamina without having to use health items and the like. It allows you to uh, save food, save animals more for tricking other guards and, and like, mm-hmm. toying with themselves, too. That's why I really like it. Um, and then... Uh, it can, you could also use it if you're having trouble stalking the end to get his camo. Um, using the Sorrows camo on you know subsequent playthroughs is an easy way to do it. Uh, but what I really like to highlight is that at the end of the game, there are a couple Eva escort maps in between the Shagohad and the boss final battle. And for some reason, the Sorrow camo works the best in those maps that you're escorting Eva and leading to the boss, which I don't think has anything to do with the environment, so to speak, but it's supposed to be more symbolic or poignant that you're about to enter this, uh, you know, very sorrowful ending, for lack of a better word. Yeah. So I just like that it doesn't really make sense, but I think it really is thematically uh, fitting, so to speak. I want to say real quick, I like, too, that I don't think we mentioned that the way you actually win the fight, it's not obvious the first time, is you have to use fake death pill, the revival pill, to come back. Oh, yeah. We, we didn't actually mention this. Yes. Yeah, so what happens is at the end of the sorrow battle, after you've passed all the people you did or did not kill, uh, Snake dies. You get a game over screen. And, you know, your instinct is probably to be like, what the hell just happened? Do I have to play this again? And I'm pretty sure that's what I did the first time through, uh, not knowing. Um, and then when that happened again, I'm like, fuck this. Let me go to gamefacts.com. <laughs> and then I learned that uh, if when you hit that game over screen, you can access your uh, item menu with the L2 trigger. And then if you use your uh, revival pill, which you're never allowed to unequip during the course of this game, uh, it'll bring Snake back to life, and that ends the battle. So, yeah, no, I, it's it's really weird. Uh, there's nothing really that indicates that's what you need to do. Again, I had to find it through the internet. I don't know how people did it otherwise. It's a little bit. It's a. It's definitely a little bit of. Uh, um, I forget the exact phrase for this, but like adventure game logic. I guess I don't know. I guess it makes more sense like real world. Like it's a revival pill. It revives you from death. Mm-hmm. But like uh, it, it is a little bit like a little obtuse, but I already heard about that before I played the game. Like it's one of the things I'd heard. So I was like, Oh, this is the part where I'm supposed to use that, that pill. I didn't even know you could use it on the first play. You could actually use the fake death, but I thought the revival pill was a one use item for this specific part of the game. <laughs> yeah. I, I thought so too, until maybe the third or fourth time I played through the game as well. Yeah. So I never used the fake death pill though. Cause I'm not a coward. Yes. If you've never seen the videos of it, I would recommend uh, every Cobra has the funniest is when they have their first reactions. The first time, if you keep doing it during the fight, they're all just like, I know you're faking. Get up. It's, it's always funny. <laughs> mm-hmm. They get really mad at you. Even the end is like pissed off at you. It's like, stop it. Fight me like a warrior. Boss, you have to shoot me. I can't. Shoot me. You want to finish your mission, don't you? Then have to shoot me. The spirit of the warrior will always be with you. Don't be sad. We'll meet again someday. So that's mission complete for this episode. Our frequency is podcastsansfrontieras at gmail.com and podsansfront on twitter.com and Instagram. I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. I've been Brian. We're men with names. Shout out to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. DJ Empirical on Twitter. Please remember to like, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast application. And until next time, remember, you have a way to fall. So got away
And then the final boss of the game was the most backstory, Lyndon Baines Johnson. The Chad LBJ. <laughs> I, uh, I, before, I, I forgot the other day there was a, or last night, there was a, uh, who was that story from? It was like, the U.S. says it's not, it hasn't spied on its allies since 2014. Oh, right, right, right. Yes, and I just, yes. I wanted to get, I couldn't find a good screen cap of it, but I wanted to get a picture of the boss saying like, tomorrow's enemy, tomorrow's ally may be today's enemy. <laughs> I put that with it, but I was just going to put a photo of the boss, but I think that might have been a little too esoteric. I would have gotten it. It's technically liquid rocket fuel, which is presumed to be a mixture of unsymmetrical dimethyl. <laughs> Let me try that again. <laughs> so it's supposed to be liquid rocket fuel, presumed to be a mixture of unsymmetrical.